on to what you've got from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Well, it is said that in the early 1900s that this ad appeared in a London newspaper. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, would you respond to an ad like that? Well, it's said that many hundreds of men did. The man who published the ad was the famous Arctic explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton. Adventurous men answered on the basis of his reputation. They knew the effort would be worth the cost and that they could trust him with their lives. Now, when I read that story, it's one of those ones that sounded just a bit too good to be true. So it didn't take me too long on Google to find out that it's probably a spurious story. It's probably uh, a myth. But it's a cool story anyway, and I like it. And it got me to thinking, I wonder, what if Jesus were to put an ad in the newspaper? What do you think? Men and women wanted to build my church. You will face relentless attacks from an invisible enemy. Those outside the church will oppose you, and even those within the church will misunderstand you. You will sacrifice your time and money and ambitions and energy and pleasures, maybe even your life. And full payment will not be awarded until your life has ended. Well, that would be an interesting ad, wouldn't it? For the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at a letter from the Apostle Paul written to a young man who, in essence, did answer the ad, if you will. He answered that kind of call. This young man accepted the tough assignment of leading the church in Ephesus. The first letter that Paul wrote to this young minister is appropriately named for him, 1 Timothy. Now, before we get into the book of 1 Timothy today, I wanted to just share a bit about the background of the city of Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering, as well as about Paul and Timothy and their connection to that particular place, because I think it will be helpful as we work our way through the letter to understand some of the background. Ephesus was a key seaport in Asia Minor. It was a, a swinging commercial center and a city-state on the, the shores of the Aegean Sea. Today, we would say it is in what we call modern-day Turkey, but it was a, a wonderful, powerful city-state, and it, it retained a lot of power without ever having an army. Isn't that interesting? They never had an army. Ephesus remained uh, in a place of power through deal-making. The city was known as the place where you could get deals done. It was a crowded city of about 350,000 people. So this is no small place. Dominating the economy of Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. It was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The, the picture on the screen is a, uh, a modern rebuilding of that temple for tourists, but it was a, a huge structure made of solid marble. It was the largest temple in the world outside of Egypt, and it was also the biggest bank east of Rome. In Acts chapter 19, you can read about the riot that Paul triggered when he was preaching in Ephesus, and he got the 
labor unions, the guilds upset with him because they depended on the business that was generated from the temple and Paul was preaching about this new God, this unknown God, this true God, and it was cutting into business. Artemis herself was a 37-breasted fertility goddess who stood to, uh, for the idea of bringing prosperity out of constant change. Now, in Ephesus, various cultures mixed and clashed. By the way, does any of this sound even close and remote to our own culture? As you listen, I think you're going to see some things that are very common to our own culture. A mix of, of cultures clashing in Ephesus. Its heritage was Greek, but the Romans had come in, pushing in, vying for dominance. But there was also a very large Jewish community that had taken root in Ephesus, as well as a, a number of communities of other ethnic groups. And so you can imagine that there were different religions and philosophies and ethics that all clashed. Well, everyone sought some piece of the economic action because that was where the action was at in Ephesus. It was all about sex and money and sports. Sound familiar to any culture you might be familiar with? Sports were a major entertainment. The Greeks had built two large gymnasiums for athletic contests, while the Romans built a 50,000-seat coliseum for gladiator combat, which soon replaced the more pure Greek sports with the blood sport of the gladiators. Here's a, a picture of the ancient ruins of that coliseum that you can still visit were you to go to Turkey today. I mentioned that sex was a big part of the culture. It was big, big business in Ephesus. Art depicting various sex acts adorned the garden walls of the large villas of the wealthy. Bestiality and homosexuality were very common. The Romans came and built baths, a kind of ancient country club where the upper class members of both sexes would come and meet in the nude. Prostitution multiple marriages, abandoned children, and neglect of the elderly were all common in the first century when Paul arrived in Ephesus. Religious opinions ranged from advocating all kinds of deviant sex to shunning sex completely. And although Artemis ruled in the public square, magic Magic influenced the personal lives of many of the people in Ephesus, and it invaded all of the formal religions there in Ephesus. One striking example is also found in Acts chapter 19, which involved even the family of the Jewish high priest. In, in magic, the Ephesian spirit of deal-making was applied to spirituality, and so they would blend together religion and profit-making. And Ephesian magic became famous throughout the Roman world. It was a belief that if you could get to Ephesus and get the, Ephesus and get the blessing of Artemis, that your business would prosper. Well, it was into this city that Paul arrived to start a church. And guess who was with him? A young man by the name of Timothy, Paul's trainee, a part of the team that Paul took with him to Ephesus. And within that population of over a, a, a third of a million people, Ephesus had a large colony of Jews. And Paul's practice was always to go to the local Jewish synagogues first with the good news of Jesus. But after rejection by the local Jewish community, Paul found it possible to teach daily 
actually in a pagan lecture hall, a, a hall called the, the Hall of Tyrannus. And there he spent the next two years, well received by the local Greek and Roman citizens who were steeped in paganism. These daily lectures went on for an extended period of time, and it was from that strategic center in Ephesus that the gospel message spread. Look at this verse from Acts 19.10. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so Ephesus would continue as a leading center of Christianity for several centuries. Well, Paul stayed with the church in Ephesus for about three years. That was longer than any of the other cities where he visited and started churches. And on his final meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul knew that he would never return to see them again. And so he issued a very serious warning regarding the future, one that included some grave counsel about false teachers coming into Ephesus in the future. I'd like for us to read together that account here on, on the screen. These are Paul's words to the elders as he met them on the beach as he was preparing to leave Ephesus. Let's read this together. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so you can hear just a little bit about Paul's background with that church. You can sense his passion and his love for that local church. And it was so critical to Paul that as he left, that the church leadership would stay focused on what was to come. Now, um, excuse me. <clears throat> so now we get, we're going to fast forward in time from that time when Paul was on the beach to uh, approximately 10 years later. Paul has sent Timothy back to Ephesus to set the church in order. And sure enough, just as Paul had warned, false teachers had indeed come into the church, stirring up dissension and controversy and fear. And so Paul entrusts his right-hand man, Timothy, to, to stand in the gap and to fight against this sinful behavior. And Timothy trusts his mentor, Paul, to provide wise counsel on how best to go about this. And so that's how we get to the book of 1 Timothy, which we are going to spend about the next eight weeks or so examining together. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to just share a little bit, first of all, about my approach to this message series. I'll, I'll, first of all, I want to say this is not going to be an in-depth verse-by-verse study of the letter. Instead, I want you to think over the next eight weeks or so as we go through this letter uh, of it more as we'll call it a 30,000-foot view, if you will. Kind of a, a broad look down on some of the major themes of this letter, especially as it relates to the local church and its health. That's why we're calling this series Healthy Church. Now, as we work through this letter... 
I suspect that some of you are going to find that some of the things I say, you might disagree with. I expect that. Some of you are going to hope that I will say more about a particular topic, and others will wish that I had said far less. There are several topics and themes in 1 Timothy that may seem controversial, such as the role of women in the worship assembly, or themes on sexuality, or money, or church leadership. And it's likely that some of you have already have some strong ideas, strongly held opinions or beliefs in these areas, or in others. Some of you might find yourself saying, I, I hope he doesn't go there, or I can't believe he said that. Or, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And so I imagine that you may even, some of you, find yourselves on some Sunday after church, driving home, a bit upset. You might even be a little angry. And if that is the case, here is what I want to say to you. It's okay. It's okay. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Our goal is to present these ideas with humility and with love and with care for our local church, Garden Way Church. As your preacher, I never want to come across as arrogant, as if I have all the answers, and I hope that you feel the same way. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are on a journey together towards eternity. And I believe that we can work anything out as long as we approach one another with grace, with humble hearts, and a goal of working together towards unity. And so here's what I ask of you. If you have a concern or a question, or you want to delve further into a particular issue, please come and talk to me, or come and talk to one of our elders. We would be glad and honored to sit down with you and work with you through the scriptures together. I also want to ask that you don't jump to conclusions or assumptions based on what you think I might have said or didn't say. You know what they say about making assumptions, right? You know how it goes. You make an ASS out of you and me when you assume. So instead, let's talk about things together. Let's reason together with Scripture as our foundation. So with all that said, let's get in to the first chapter of 1 Timothy. So the year is around 65 A.D., and this church plant in Ephesus is in trouble. False teaching has found its way into the church, into the pulpit, if you will. Legalism has been leading people astray. Violent men and obnoxious women were wreaking havoc in the worship assembly time. Relationships were a mess between children and their parents, servants and masters, men and women, the young and the old. The wealthy disdained generosity and they held on to their possessions with tight fists. Sin had run wild and was ruining everything, threatening to destroy the young church at Ephesus. And it is into this mess that the Apostle Paul sends a letter to his young apprentice, Timothy. Timothy had been charged by Paul with remaining at Ephesus where he was to repair the damage 
to restore the beauty of the church and lead the church back to health. Now this letter, 1 Timothy, has survived for about 2,000 years or so here in our Bibles, where we know it as the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, or more simply, 1 Timothy. And throughout 1 Timothy, Paul offers beautiful, godly, pastoral wisdom on how the Ephesians should conduct themselves if they are going to remain or to be a healthy church. And this is wisdom that every church in every time and every place needs, including in the year 2022 in Eugene and Springfield, Oregon. Now, I was thinking about how I might sum up chapter 1 of Timothy, and so I'm just going to do it this way. This is the Rob Carney paraphrase, all right? Here's what I came up with. Dear Timothy, it sounds like you got some troublemakers there at ECC. That's Ephesus Christian Church. <laughs> they sound like a bunch of crooked lawyers talking a bunch of legalistic legalese. They want people to think they know it all, but they actually know nothing about the gospel of grace, Timothy. Well, Timothy, I want to remind you that I could teach them a thing or two about grace. You know my past. I was more legalistic, arrogant, and violent than the guys you're dealing with could ever think about being. And it took the grace of God to change me, Timothy. And that's what it's going to take to change them too. So Timothy, command them to stop their false teaching. That's why I left you in Ephesus. I know that you can do it. Speak up for the gospel of grace. Fight legalism with love, Timothy. And above all, hold fast to your faith. Hold on to what you've got. Hold on to what you've got. You see, Paul knew Timothy was facing a critical battle at Ephesus. Timothy was facing the kind of problem that could split a church in an unhealthy manner or destroy a local church completely. And so today, we're going to consider chapter 1 from two distinct points of view. First, what a healthy church should avoid, and secondly, what a healthy church should pursue. So let's look at it from those two aspects. Number one, a healthy church must avoid legalism that divides. Legalism that divides. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Paul's words to Timothy, as I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So that's Paul's initial charge to Timothy. The Ephesian church, as I mentioned earlier, was a multicultural church, mostly a mix of Jews and Greeks. The gospel of Jesus had united them from very diverse cultures and backgrounds and economic levels, and this very diverse church had come together celebrating the unity that comes from knowing Jesus. But now, false teachers have come in trying to divide the church. The Greek teachings came out of what we would call Gnosticism. 
That is a, a popular religion or philosophy of the day based on mysticism and secret knowledge, which was very popular in the first century, especially into the second century. The Jews then countered with Old Testament genealogies that were assigned in some cases some sort of mythological significance by some of the rabbis. And in both cases, the root of the problem was legalism. Both groups taught that they had a corner on the truth. Both groups felt superior to anyone who wasn't in on their stuff. And both groups looked down on the others as unlightened riffraff. In other words, for both groups, it was my way or the highway. And friends, that's how it always begins with legalism. Legalism wears many faces, but it comes down basically to this attitude. I have some special knowledge and information and insight. You need what I have, and if you disagree with me, then you're just wrong, because obviously I'm right. Do you see the underlying attitude flowing through there? Through the years, I've been baffled more than once by how many church folk love to major in the minors. In the past, I have seen churches split over whether or not to have kitchens in their building. I know of one church that split over what brand of Sunday school material that they would buy. I know of one church, actually a number of churches, that have split over which version of the Bible, the English version, that they will prefer in their worship assembly. After all, the King James is the best, right? If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> you do realize the King James Version in the English version didn't come along until about 1,500 years after the time of Jesus and Paul and the Apostles. In the last few years, I have seen churches debating and dividing over whether churches should be purpose-driven or emergent or missional or all kinds of other fancy words, and I'd probably join in on the argument if I could figure out exactly what any of those terms actually meant. People debate, and they divide over whether sermons should be expository, that is verse by verse, or topical or narrative or linear. And many of the people in the pews would just say, hey, as long as you get me out before lunch, I'm fine with whatever you <laughs> preach. I have even heard of serious disagreement over whether the pulpit should be wood or metal or plexiglass or gone altogether. And I guess you can tell where I stand, right? Good old solid wood is the way to go. The point is, Oh, by the way, isn't there the continuing argument, division over whether we ought to be singing the old stuff or the new stuff? And by the way, the old stuff or the new stuff changes every 10, 15, 20 years, doesn't it? And what was new becomes old, and then it becomes sacred. When 20 years ago, it was new, and we didn't like it. And we divide over those things. The point is, do you see it? We can waste way too much thought and energy on side issues like that when the real issue is the gospel of grace. 
We have a very real spiritual battle to fight. And friends, we cannot, cannot afford to be sidetracked. And the fact is that when we stop making the main thing the main thing, any church is bound to wander into some form of legalism or mysticism that bypasses God's grace. You know, it occurs to me that for some reason, American Christians in particular seem to be drawn in by several different philosophies. One is trendy but shallow teaching that is based on pop psychology and kind of feel-goodism. There's lots of churches that focus on that. Or, if not that, then they go after ministries that focus on constant signs and wonders with lots of emotionalism and mysticism and a focus on personal wealth and frequent appeals for money. Or folks are drawn towards forceful leaders with doctrine, strong doctrine, full of rules and regulations. The problem is there are rules and regulations about how to dress and how to talk and how to think and especially in the last number of years, about particular political ideals. And all of these things creep into the church. And they sidetrack us from the gospel of grace. And they remove our focus from Jesus onto our personal preferences, opinions, and ideals. Then the next step is what? They decide that everyone has to describe to their, subscribe to their particular brand of religion. If they don't, what is, what's the old legalism way say? They're just plain old wrong. And furthermore, they might not even be worthy, or maybe they're not even saved. And we certainly can't fellowship with them until they come around to our point of view. And so legalism can take a lot of different forms, but it most often has these three characteristics. Number one, legalism takes what is accessible and makes it unreachable. This is very important. This is the word of God, and it is made to be accessible, not unreachable. Second, legalism takes a blessing and makes it a burden. God's word is meant to bring freedom and grace and hope not to place a heavy burden on people. And then third, it takes what is simple and makes it very complex. And so beware, friends, of doctrines, teachings, ideas that are so complex that nobody can figure them out without a book this thick or a library of books or a particular teacher that knows what they're talking about. These are dangerous things. God's word is meant to be simple for all of us simple folk like myself. Here's just a great illustration that I came across. A man came across a book called Simple Steps to Better Health. He got excited when he started chapter one because the first step was to drink more water. And he thought, hey, how hard can that be? Well, he found out how hard it could be. Here are just a few of the rules outlined in the book for water drinking. Number one, never drink tap water. The chlorine will give you cancer, the fluoride will give you arthritis, and the aluminum will give you Alzheimer's. Number two, never drink bottled water. The plastic bottles contaminate it and the bacteria grows when it sits around too long. Number three, never drink filtered water because most filtered water isn't filtered enough and distilled water is 
filtered too much. And so the only water you should drink is water from an alkaline filter with a pH above seven. It has to go through a second electrolysis filter creating a rich, dense, hexagonal molecular level. And by the way, by the way, you can purchase this special filter from the author of the book for just $299. Isn't that great? And then finally, you need to drink two gallons of this magic concoction every day but only at room temperature and never with your meals. Wow. So the man reading the book said, reading all that made me so thirsty, I went outside and guzzled water out of my garden hose. <laughs> he broke all the rules. Well, friends, I want you to think about this. Jesus comes to offer living water. And how sad is it when legalism makes such a simple, sweet gift seem complicated and difficult and unattainable? You can have this living water, but only if you get it our way. And it'll help, by the way, if you look like us and talk like us and think like this. And oh yeah, by the way, make sure you clean yourself up before you get around to drinking that living water. Brothers and sisters, we need to offer the water of life freely, just as Jesus did. We need to keep our message simple. We need to avoid the extremes of legalism like the plague. I want you to consider Paul's next words to Timothy in verses 5 through 7. He says to Timothy, The aim of our charge, Timothy, is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Isn't that a great statement? Do you find yourself fitting into that statement? Do you love people sincerely, with a pure heart and a good conscience? Or do you look to judge people, to fit them, force them into the way of thinking that you think is best? Paul goes on and he says, certain persons talking about people in the church, certain persons by swerving from these, from the pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Vain means empty or meaningless. Vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You know, there's a whole lot of confident assertions floating around out there made by people who really don't understand a whole lot about what they're saying or the things about which they're so confident. We need to be on guard. And we need to make sure that our message is held up always by love, a pure heart, and a good conscience. But friends, we can't just look at the dangers of legalism without also looking at the dangers of the other side, what I'm going to call permissivism. What is permissivism? Permissivism says that no one can be sure about anything if it's right or wrong because actually there's no such thing as right or wrong. Whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. Does that sound like a culture that you might be familiar with? You see, Paul didn't want the church to climb out of the ditch of legalism on one side of the road, only to fall into the ditch of permissivism on the other side. That's why in verse 8, he reminds Timothy this. 
He says, Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You know, this is really kind of a clever play on words. Paul's kind of being humorous here, I think. It shows his sense of humor. But here's what we want to remember, folks. God's word is not a hammer to bang somebody with, to force our opinions and ideas on. Neither is God's word a weapon designed to hurt people. God's word is full of goodness, but it's also full of warnings. And we need to carefully balance that with love from a pure heart and a clear conscience. So Paul moves from making kind of a humorous statement about the law, if it's used lawfully, and then he makes what we might call a pretty unfunny list of sins that he lists for Timothy. Right up there. says, Timothy, understanding this, that the law, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, friends, our God is not an anything-goes kind of God. His law does stand in judgment against all lawbreakers, but here's the flip side of the coin. God's law does not condemn his children. When we come to faith in Christ Jesus, we come out from under the law. The law is meant to reveal our sin and our brokenness, absolutely. But Jesus comes to relieve us from that burden. That's what salvation is. We are saved from the condemnation of the law. Our sins, if we are in Christ, have been covered by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I hope you do. That, by the way, is what unites us in God's church. We are a hospital for the recovery and the healing of our past brokenness. We are not a hall of fame where we all get together and put on our Sunday best face and pretend like everything is just peachy keen all the time. That's one of the things that drives me crazy about the church. And by the way, when I say it drives me crazy, I do it too. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I might be beat up inside. I might be hurting. Things are going on. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. Amen. Let's be real. This is a hospital, not a hall of fame. All right, so now we're going to transition from avoiding legalism. I hope we got that point clear this morning. We are called to avoid legalism that divides us, and we're going to move now into what we're called to pursue. What is it we're to pursue? We are to pursue the grace that unites. The grace that unites. The task of leaders in any church is to guard against anything that sidetracks us from the gospel of grace. Friends, we don't need any new popular teaching of the day. 
There is nothing new in God's word. God's word is established. It is true. It is good. We don't need to add anything to it. And so all of the books, all of the ideas that are floating about, there might be some great stuff out there. I'm not saying avoid it all, but I'm saying that you make sure that all of it is washed in God's word so that we don't get sidetracked. We don't need new, improved. All right, it's not like your soap or your toothpaste where every few months they come out with something new and improved. What happened to the old stuff? I've been using it for years. It's no good anymore. I need the new, improved. God's word doesn't work like that. God's word is already new and improved when it was spoken and recorded and preserved for us. We've got everything we need. We simply need to hold fast in our faith in Christ. Paul kind of sums this up in verse 15. Look what he tells Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then he's going to make the saying, all right? So here's the trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul adds this, of whom I am foremost. He makes it personal there. Friends, this is the gospel in its purest form. It is amazing in its simplicity. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's say that underlying part together just so we get it into our heads and into our hearts. Ready? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the trustworthy statement. If you want to be legalistic about anything, Here's what everyone in God's church needs to agree, agree about. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is what we can declare without compromise. This is the truth worth fighting for. These other things that we spend so much time debating and arguing about are more often and most often side issues compared to the saving grace of God poured out through Jesus Christ. Now Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. This is the first of three times he's going to say this in this book of 1 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy statement, Timothy. It's not like the rest of it's not trustworthy, all right? Paul's not saying everything else is optional. Here's the only trustworthy thing. No, but he, he, it's his way of saying, here's a bedrock foundational truth, all right? Trustworthy statement, Timothy. These sayings or these statements are faithful to the gospel message and they are worthy of our trust. They are also windows, if you will, into the healthy church. Studying these sayings can help remind us of the foundations of our faith. Returning to these apostle-approved trustworthy sayings can return us to the core essentials of the gospel. The church at Ephesus needed this reminder. And guess what? Here at Garden Way Church, we need the same reminder. We have been saved by trusting, not by trying harder. We have been saved by His mercy, not by our merit. We have been saved by His dying, not by our doing more and harder. And then Paul holds himself up as an example of the grace of God. He went from a blaspheming, violent persecutor of Christians 
to becoming the most prolific church planter and gospel sharer in the New Testament. Paul knew that the grace of God is made visible through changed lives. And he says, I'm the first changed life that you can use as an example, Timothy. That's why he says in verse 16, but I, this is Paul speaking about himself, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, he's talking about being the foremost sinner, the worst guy, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display in his perfect patience an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I am an example of someone who was redeemed, purchased off the scrap heap, and made to serve Jesus in an effective way. And friends, That's what Jesus wants to do with each one of you. He wants us to be able to say, I'm the foremost, but I'm redeemed. The grace of God has covered me. And now look what God is doing in my life. That is the grace that unites. That is the grace that is winsome and attractive and will draw people who don't know Jesus to the church. But the legalism that divides will not draw people to the Lord's church. It will repel them because it stinks, because it's ugly, and because people can get all that junk out in the world, and when they look at us and see that kind of junk going on here, they think, why would I want to be a part of that? So let us pursue the grace that unites us. Let us live fully in the grace that unites us. How many of you have ever found yourself stuck trying to troubleshoot a problem with your computer or your phone or some other electronic device? You know, according to multiple studies, one of the biggest time wasters in the workplace are computer-related malfunctions. Uh, I'm looking for, there's Janine. We just spent Friday afternoon dealing with all kinds of computer-related malfunctions, and neither Janine or I were very happy, all right? And it sidetracked us from getting to what we needed to do. One study found that the average person spends 22 to 25 minutes a day trying to fix electronic-related issues. The estimated cost to large companies in the United States is somewhere in the ballpark of $4,000 a minute. That's how much is being lost as employees try to fiddle with their stupid computers. One easy solution, this author says, for many of these issues could be as simple as turning off your device. Well, that could be taken a lot of different directions, couldn't it? Friday, I wanted to take a a hammer and just smash that thing. He says, over half of computer problems that technicians deal with can be fixed by a simple reboot. The reason that computers often fail is that they have systems processes continually running behind the scenes. And these processes leave behind an electronic footprint that takes up lots of memory. So when you turn off your computer or your smartphone or your tablet, then all those programs and processes end, allowing you to start with a clean slate, with a faster, more efficient working device. Friends, 
that same principle can apply to our Christian life and our life together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through confession and forgiveness, God's grace allows us to reboot, if you will, our lives and begin new. New every morning, as it says in Lamentations. Isn't that great? God allows us to start new. Well, Paul ends this section of his letter with a a tone of kind of urgency, I think, in verses 18 and 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. What is Paul doing here? He's charging Timothy to hold on to the gospel of grace. Grace that has turned his own life around. Grace that has flowed through Timothy's life. It is the truth worth fighting for. And as we fight that good fight, we need to hold fast to our faith in Christ Jesus who came to this world to save sinners. Hold on, folks, to what you got. Avoid that legalism that so easily divides and pursue the pure grace that unites. May we pursue these healthy habits together as the family of God at Garden Way Church. You know, one of the wonderful, healthy habits of the church is the Lord's Supper, the communion. The communion is a celebration and it is a memorial of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. He paid the sin for your debt, for my debt so that we might freely walk in his grace. The bread and the cup remind us of that sacrifice. And so we're going to share together in the communion right now. As followers of Jesus, we are invited. By the way, that invitation is from Jesus himself. It's not from the preacher. The invitation is from Jesus to gather at the table, to share in the meal to remember the truth of the grace that is so freely bestowed upon each one who would choose to receive it.